Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedecase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is very, very special. I have with me, for the third time, Dr. Christopher Watkin, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Biblical Critical Theory. If you haven't heard about it, you will. It's all over the place. Everyone's talking about it. There's a, there's even like a ton of misrepresentation going on on, on Twitter, I think, where people are like critical theory and they just go off. But like hope, hoping to remedy that today um, is a fantastic book. Dr. Watkin is is the man. He's He's been on to talk about Foucault and Derrida before. And they've been some of the most popular episodes. You guys have loved those. So you're going to love this one as well. Before we dive into biblical critical theory, how the Bible's unfolding story makes sense of modern life and culture. I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen through support, uh, especially those on Patreon. If you guys like this podcast, if you like what I do, if you like hearing from the guests I have on, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. Uh, that's really the best way to support the podcast. Best way to keep the lights on in here, buy dog food for my dog and all that good stuff. Um, you can find a link in the description and you can join for a bunch of different options, a bunch of different ways, amounts a month. And there's different perks, different benefits at each level. So go check those out and please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can also uh, give a super thanks if you're watching on YouTube down in the left corner, stage right, something like that. You'll find it. Um, there's a bunch of ways to support the podcast. Uh, any, anything helps. All of it helps. Share this with a friend. Like it. All that good stuff. But uh, that's probably enough right now. Let's uh, bring in Dr. Christopher Watkin. Again, the book is Biblical Critical Theory. Let's go. <clears throat> Chris, thanks Thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, man. Parker, what a joy it is to be back. It's lovely to see you again. It's lovely to be talking with you again. Yeah, definitely, man. I feel the same way. Uh, you're, the episodes with you have been so illuminating for me personally, uh, reading your work, but also like the audience loves them. They, they go nuts for this kind of stuff. So I'm really excited to have you back on. Um, before we get into some of the nitty gritty stuff, uh, maybe just an overview like, why this book and and why now? You talk about in the book how it's 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 satisfying like a twenty year itch. Can you recount that for us? <laughs> yes, uh, the the itch began when I was an undergraduate. Um, so you got to imagine me as a first year in a big secular university in the arts faculty, and week after week we're being thrown theoretical approaches to try and churn out essays on. So you got you know your Marxes, your Freuds, your Nietzsches, um, you've got your your Chris Stavers, you've got your Simone de Beauvoirs, um, and so on and so on and so on. Um, and I'm, you know, really loving trying to understand how different people see the world and, and try and get inside the, the skin of these theoretical approaches and work out how they function. And then a, another part of my life at that time is that I have the great privilege of being a member of a Bible-believing church where we're being taught every week to, to take the Bible seriously and to read it slowly and to apply it to the whole of our lives. Yet there's no place in my life really at that time where these two worlds can get around the table and talk to each other, you know, where the Bible mm -hmm. can speak into these theoretical debates and give its own angle on the different yeah. questions that are flying around in my university studies. And that's the frustration, that's the itch that I talk about. And really two things happened to try, I suppose, to try and scratch that itch. 
um the first one was that i um i did a bible overview i was i was a junior leader on a kids summer camp um mm. and when we weren't washing up or organizing soccer matches for the kids uh, we were being mm. taught the bible and one of the streams was a bible overview and it it was mind-blowing to see and i hadn't seen this before that the the bible isn't just a, a series of stories given to us by God to teach us how to live, mm -hmm. but is actually one unfolding story, complex, multi-layered, absolutely, but nevertheless, one unfolding story mm -hmm. from beginning to end. And not just a story within reality, but, but a story that claims to be the story of reality, the story that makes yeah. sense of everything else. And I just found that idea so compelling and so rich and so true and meaningful um that i've been um an evangelist i suppose for bible <laughs> overviews ever since yeah and the second thing that happened was that i stumbled across and read augustine's city of god i think i read it for the first time when i was on holiday with my parents it was a rainy summer week as they almost always are in the uk mm. uh, in the beautiful yorkshire seaside town of bridlington uh, and uh, I, I plowed my way through Augustine's City of God. Most of it, if I'm being honest, went right over my head, didn't understand much yeah. of it. But what I did understand and what captivated me was that Augustine was essentially using this Bible overview framework in the second half of the City of God. He just tells the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But he was using it as a way to critique late Roman culture at a depth and with a breadth that I'd never seen any Christian critique culture before and indeed have not ever since. I think it, it is the high point of Christian cultural criticism in the 2000 years of the church. Outside the Bible, I think Augustine's City of God is as deep and as rich as it has so far got. Um, yeah. And he showed me how this Bible overview framework could be used as a series of lenses through which to, to penetrate into and to, to dissect and critique and understand a culture in some ways better than, than the culture could understand itself. He points out things in late Roman society that, that the Romans were blind to themselves. And that then was the pattern that I knew if I did ever write anything about this, if I, if I did ever try to bring the Bible to the table of these theoretical critiques and conversely to, to bring the theoretical critiques to the Bible, um, this was the pattern that I wanted to follow. And so that's what I've tried to do. I've, I've tried mm -hmm. to hold, you know, if you like, a, a, a flickering candle to the blazing sun of Augustine's City of God um, <laughs> and to try to do for late modern society what he so brilliantly and incomparably did for, for late Roman society. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. So, so I caught that, um, in, in the book, um, and your debt 
to uh, Augustine there, which is fantastic. He he splits his up into two into like two sections, I guess. And like you said, you know, the second one is this biblical critical uh, theory type type move. Um, but you 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 say that you interweave your sections all throughout. Um, yeah, can you tell us about that? Like, like, um, why not follow Augustine's pattern? Like, what, what's different? Um, because, because you, you do, you, you mix it all together, um, in a way that's super duper helpful, and I think maybe even an improvement. Though, you know, sorry, uh, to the Augustine fans out there, I know that's quite a statement. But what, what do you think about that? Was that, was that intentional? Um, let's let's just get one thing straight. I am not improving <laughs> in any way, shape, or form on Augustine. Um, I, I don't, I don't have any pretensions in that area mm, whatsoever yeah. so um yeah look he in the first half of the city of god he 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 delves into to roman culture and he looks at it from all different aspects and i think this is something else that's really compelling about his approach to yeah. cultural critique he doesn't just sort of parachute into roman culture and deal with one or two particular spot fires that he notices there and then, you know, get airlifted out at the end. He, mm -hmm. he looks over its, its civic life, its politics, its games, its religion, its superstition, its, its military, everything. And I think that's one of the, the brilliant lessons to learn from the city of God, that, that a culture is a whole ecosystem of ideas. And if mm -hmm. we try to isolate one or two movements or ideologies within a culture and just deal with those in the way that perhaps it's it's a tendency or a temptation for us to do with things like you know critical race theory today yeah. without understanding that the ecosystem of ideas in which particular movements can can thrive and be meaningful then i think we're making it really really hard for ourselves to understand and to engage meaningfully with those movements so he he does the whole of roman culture and then you know as you rightly say in the second half of the city of god he he does a bible overview um i think i i just found it helpful to juxtapose the the engagements with culture with the particular doctrines that they're drawn out of and yeah. so so the way i've done it is I, I will speak about a particular part of the bible say take creation or or sin or eschatology, and then draw particular cultural um, implications or engagements out of those doctrines as I go. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, so I really appreciate that because I I studied systematic theology, and that's that's the way I like it. And so um, it, it was really helpful for me. And and as I was reading it, I would I would think, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis said something about this. And the next page, of course, there was a quote from C.S. Lewis or, or, you know, just whoever it was, whoever I was thinking of, I think Tolkien said this. And then again, and so you nailed everyone. It's 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 so good. I can't commend the book highly enough. However, people on there, there's been some pushback, at least. And maybe I shouldn't, you know, highlight them or whatever. So I won't say any names or anything. But some people just hear, especially in, in America, in the United States, they hear critical theory and their hackles go up and it's just. Here's another, you know, capitulation to the culture, critical theory. What, the, what does the Bible have to do with critical theory? So I just want to address that real quick, um, just like an apology for a biblical critical theory. Um, can, you, can you help us out? Like, what, what is critical theory and, and how can we have a, a biblical version of that? There are different senses of critical theory. The, the first one that I became familiar with, this was in the, the very early 2000s was in a unit that I took as an undergrad at university called Modern Critical Theory. And 
the way that critical theory was understood in that unit and the way that, that I understood it for, for many years was approaches to culture and society, largely in the wake of Immanuel Kant, mm. that seek to adopt a critical position with respect to the status quo of society and to um, provide a, a vision for a better society. So they say that there are some things that are wrong in society. Let me show you what they are. And here's how they could be better. Um, and we did Marx in that unit. We did Foucault, Derrida. I think we did Christeva, Simone de Beauvoir, uh, people like that. And so, so those were all critical theories in the sense. Um, there's also a, a narrower sense of critical theory, which is Frankfurt School critical theory, Adorno, Horkheimer, right. um, Marcuse, and so forth, who a, a, a group of early um, 20th century thinkers based in Frankfurt, funnily enough, who uh, tried to take Marx's ideas and use them to critique culture. So that's where we get this idea of cultural Marxism from. Um, and then there's an even narrower sense, which is that the way that, that the idea of critical theory sort of circulates, I guess, in the news media today, which is ideas like critical race theory, you know, uh, using the work of, of thinkers like Derek Bell um, in, the, in the last few decades to have a particular understanding of the way in which race relations work in society. And my intuition and my experience is that if we forget the broader sense and focus only either on simply the Frankfurt School or simply on things like critical race theory, then it becomes very hard to understand those particular movements and where they came from and what they're saying and why they make sense to the people who, who espouse them. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that you know, I was saying a moment ago, it's, it's like you configure yourself like a SWAT team and you parachute into society thinking you're going to engage with one particular thing, say it's critical race theory. You do your mm. job and then you airlift yourself out. But, but you haven't really addressed the, the, the wider questions and issues. And it, it's just really quite a, a flimsy approach. Mm. And so I, I do insist on this wider sense of critical theory. And I think that's one reason why some people have reacted quite strongly against the book, uh, because the, the first sense that people often encounter today is the narrow one. So people think biblical critical theory, well, that must be assuming everything that critical race theory and, and things like that assume and saying, let's bring those assumptions to the Bible. But really what's going on is, is almost exactly the opposite of that. Right. It's taking... Is trying to begin with the Bible and say, let's build a critical approach to society in terms of a biblical set of ideas and concepts. And so in order to, to see how that might work, I think you've got to understand what these different critical theories are all doing. They're all trying to make certain things in the world viable, visible, and valuable. So viable in the sense of certain things become possible and believable in the world if you follow a particular critical theory. So take Marxism, for example. Um, you, you might have never thought that something like revolution was, was possible in society, but you read Marx and you, you, you sort of carry on doing that and you read it over time. And you think, oh yeah, I can see 
how a society-wide revolution might take place. So that becomes viable for you at mm. that point. Uh, and certain things also become visible. So, you know, someone like Foucault uh, will be saying, notice the, the power relations within society and power imbalances, how power is distributed within society. And again, it may never have crossed your mind previously, but Foucault makes those things visible. And different critical theories make certain things valuable as well. They teach mm. you what to, to praise in society, what to desire and also what to condemn. And, and on that level, the Bible is also forming Christians in those ways. Now, of course, this is not the only thing that the Bible is doing. The Bible is also, um, you know, God breathed useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's the sword of the spirit and so on and so on and so on. So all of that. And also the Bible is, as Christians read it and meditate upon it, making certain things in the world viable. So, for example, the, the idea to many people today of trusting God, trusting God's promises is just ridiculous. It's, hmm. it's not that they would prefer not to do so. It's, it's that the very idea seems nonsensical. And yet, if you read the Bible over a period of time and think about it carefully, you, you begin to see that trusting the sword of God who, who reveals himself in the Bible when, when he makes promises is it, not a ridiculous thing at all. That's something that becomes viable in the world. You can say, yes, I can see how that would be possible. I can see how that would be livable as a reality. Uh, and the Bible also makes certain things in the world visible. So think about the psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God. And you mm. may have looked at plenty of sunsets in your life, but you may never have thought, isn't God glorious? And doesn't this sunset show that he's glorious? Uh, and yet the psalm sensitizes you to that. It makes God's glory, if you like, visible in the sunsets that you've been looking at all your life, but may never have thought of them in terms of God's glory before. Um, yeah. And the, the Bible makes certain ways of being in the world and certain things in the world valuable as well. So before I was a Christian, for example, if you would have said to me, serving other people is something that you should desire, I would have looked at you very strangely. Like my 15-year-old self would have sort of frowned at <laughs> you at that point and said, that's just, I can't, that doesn't compute. That There's no category right. for that in my world. And yet you see how, you know, the Son of Man didn't come to serve but be served and to give his life as a ransom for many and how he's constantly enjoining his disciples, don't try and be the greatest, become the servant mm. of other people. And that becomes something that you, you prize in the world. You value serving other people. And so the Bible is doing these, you know, what you might call these, these critical moves, but they're, they're actually biblical moves as well. Yeah. Uh, and that's the way in which the Bible is functioning as a critical theory. And the, mm. the, the principle upon that works, just, just one final sentence, I realize this is going on a little bit now. No, this is, is great, that, yeah. But the language that I use in the book is that you've got to let the Bible set its own table. Yeah. In other words, you don't start with critical theory as it's understood in modernity and then try and squeeze the Bible into that mold, which I think yeah. is, is what the people who are reacting against the book assume it to be doing. But you say, let's just try and forget everything we know about critical theory and just use the Bible and try and build it from the ground up and see where we get. So just mm. using biblical ideas and biblical concepts as much as we're able to do so. Um, and what sort of critical theory 
in terms of making Bible visible and valuable would emerge from the Bible itself. And then when the Bible set its own table, when it set out its own concepts in its own way and being given, given its room to do so, that's what you then bring into conversation with modern critical theories who've also set their own table. And so you're not forcing anyone into any sort of foreign set of concepts. You're letting the, the Bible talk in its language and modern critical theory talk in its language. And then you're trying to get the conversation going uh, between them. Yeah, yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And you've you've mentioned that same phrase in our previous episodes on Derrida and Foucault. And you said, hey, set their own table and the Bible set its own table and then we can talk but we're not going to misrepresent each other. You know, that's, that's not helpful. It doesn't get in, it doesn't get us anywhere. So we, we've kind of dealt with, um, I'll call it like the right wing critique, which is just the knee jerk reaction to anything that says critical and theory at all in the same sentence. And then I, I think there might be also, though I haven't seen it perhaps because my own circles that I run in, but I'm sure there's going to be a, what I'll call like the left wing, left wing critique, which says, you know, how can the Bible set its own table? You're, everyone's reading the Bible through their own eyes, you know, and you have this Western perspective that you're taking to it and you're just, uh, you know, assuming that, that these Western presuppositions are the ones that are right. Um, do you, do you have any, anything before I want to get into the actual meat of this book, but I thought it might be helpful for the listeners. Can you help us out with that kind of left-wing critique of maybe an attack on like the perspicuity of scripture or think it might be naive that the Bible can, you know, has its own meta narrative or something. One of the brilliant things about the Bible in the contemporary context is that it, it very resoundly, if that's a word and thoroughly isn't a Western book. Um, mm. It was written, uh, you know, over a period of many years in many contexts, none of which happened to be the modern West. Um, right. And and I think this, this cultural diversity of the biblical texts is something that's so precious for Christians, precisely because it doesn't allow you to settle comfortably into one cultural mold and to use that as the yardstick by which to measure every other culture. Um, you know, so you've got, the, the Bible is, is multilingual to begin with. You know, it's mm. written in Hebrew, little bits of Aramaic in the Old Testament, and then Koine Greek in the New Testament. That's, that's odd for a biblical, right. for, for a, a major um, religious text. And it, it's not written at one particular historical moment either. And that's odd as well. Um, you know, it's written, uh, to and about communities who are by turns nomadic, self-governing, um, in exile, under occupation. And, and therefore, there isn't one cookie-cutter cultural mm. sort of mold that, that the Bible fits into. And you see this, this principle of, of richness and plurality even in the, the biblical texts themselves. You know, so why are there four Gospels? Why are there kings and chronicles? Why are there two creation accounts in Genesis, that there seems to be a repeated move that the Bible is making on many different levels to diversify and enrich its, its perspective and its standpoint. And if it only happened once, if it was just that there were two Genesis creation accounts and everything else was sort of monotone, you think, oh, it might be a bit of, a, a bit of an anomaly. But, but that, that it happens so repeatedly on so many levels, I, I think it can be no coincidence. Now, I, I think, therefore, mm -hmm. that, that what the, one of the consequences of that 
is that nobody should find the Bible comfortable. And if modern Western people find the Bible comfortable, I think the alarm bells should start ringing. Um, because mm. if the Bible is not rubbing every single person and every single culture up the wrong way somewhere, then I think there's a great danger that we've remade the Bible in our own image and we've domesticated yeah. it to our own culture. Yeah. Um, and so at the point that we think that the Bible's presuppositions are Western, I think that we need to be alarmed that we've defanged and domesticated the Bible. Um, I don't think its, it's presuppositions fit snugly in, into any cultural moment. You know, there, there are overlaps, of course, with the way that, that, that each culture will approach questions like knowledge. Um, but if we've domesticated it, the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with, with us, I think. Yeah. And we need to read it more seriously uh, and engage with it uh, in a more thoughtful way uh, in order to be able to see that, that it, it simply is not a, a Western book and that it challenges, yeah. quote unquote, Western culture, not, not necessarily in a unique way, but in the way that it challenges every culture and the way that no one should feel completely comfortable reading it from cover to cover. Yeah. And amen. That's such a great answer. Thanks for that. That's, that's, that's great. Um, well, so one of the things I found really, really encouraging, uh, probably in the introduction was your story about, uh, you, you kind of recounted it for us a, a little bit, but, but your time in, uh, college, you're, you're looking at feminist, uh, critical theories, Marxist, you know, different ones. And you're like, why isn't there a biblical one? And, uh, and that was, you know, part of this itch. It's just so cool to think like, yeah, like, why isn't, why, let's do that. Let's take this Bible and let's critique our culture and their culture and everyone's culture with the Bible. Why not, why not a biblical critique? So I really like that. And your explanation is really helpful that it's not, um, this, this book's not necessarily like a, a defense or explanation of the Bible to the culture. There's a lot of those books and we need more. It's probably a, a generational thing. Every generation is going to have to do that kind of stuff, explaining the Bible to the culture, but instead it's an analysis and critique of the culture through the Bible. Um, and then in this indirect fashion, it's, you know, making the Christian story uh, a, appeal, making it appealing to to the culture. I, I love that, man. It's so it's so great. Um, it's not direct apologetics, but maybe like indirect. Um, you also made this distinction between doctrine and apologetics. Doctrine is like knowing what you believe, apologetics, knowing why you believe. And then cultural critique is something else. It's like the so what, like the directional um can you can you help us with that like with the the cultural critique it's not it's not what and it's not why is it so what like what what's the the question that it's answering there yeah i think so what is is a really helpful way of putting it so christians ha have been i think in the in the last few decades um reasonably good at knowing what we believe um you know there are lots of books of, of systematic theology and 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 doctrine that, that help us to understand what the Bible is saying. And we've been, you know, reasonably good at trying to explain why we believe those things. Uh, and that's, you know, your, your sort of your apologetics in, in various different flavors and, and guises. Um, and, and as you say, that the book is trying not to replicate that, but to ask a different question, which, which Christians have also asked, and I quote lots of people in the book who, who are asking it, which is the, okay, so let's let's just assume the Bible for sake of argument. What implications does that have for society and culture and human beings? What does it look like, if you like, to walk around inside this biblical story? What would society be like if this was the way that 
that um that society and culture were shaped and in in my experience that question hasn't been asked or addressed as often let's say as what we believe and why we believe it but, but i think it's it's an equally important question because if if we sort of have a a theoretical understanding of different doctrines of the bible but don't really know how they work themselves out in our the way that we live in the world or the way that we view society or the way that we critique society then we're they're remaining sort of abstract notions floating free of of any sort of friction with reality in our minds um, and can't do any work in the world um, you know and as christians we believe that the the Bible is not simply a true story about the world, but it's actually a really good and healthy story. Yeah. Um, there's good news for society. Um, yeah. Yes, because it shows people uh, the way to, to be right with God and, and to have a, a relationship with him, to have, to have our sins forgiven and so forth. Um, but also because it's, it's a healthy pattern for a flourishing culture and a flourishing society. And if, if we yeah. cut that off, from our understanding, then I think we're we're being sub-biblical in the way that that we engage with and appropriate biblical truth. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's helpful. Um, so a, a quick follow-up question on that would be: um, so we have the what, we have the why, doctrine, apologetics. Now we have the the so what, the the biblical critical theory. Is is the is this, uh, I don't think it's a manifesto for like building a society. I think it, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, cause then I'll just, I'll follow it and we'll go build a society. But I, I think that that's like the, I wonder if that's the next step afterwards, if that's downstream of like, there's the, the, the critique by saying, Hey, look, you know, take for the, to the sake of argument, take the Bible. What would the society look like if we follow God's word here? And if this were the, the true story of reality, what if people catch that vision and they're like, Oh wow, that is really compelling. Um, you know, Lord willing, they'll they'll give their lives to Christ. Is is this like a blueprint for building society? You know, now now that's there's another hot topic. Uh, I try not to go with like the the hot topic stuff. I want it to be evergreen content. But you know, there's like Christian nationalism now, and that mean that's a a Rorschach test for whoever's listening. And they go, Christian nationalism, that's terrible. That's great. That's good. That's bad. Um, where does this fit in like the the building of culture the shaping of culture the christian in the, in the culture and how we should vote and stuff like that any any thoughts on that it's a fantastic question this this book is working at the level of what charles taylor and cornelius castoriadis call social imaginaries so it's the, the, the way in which we, we situate ourselves in the world, the way that we think the world works, the big sort of overarching structures and patterns of reality. So you won't find out who to vote for if you, <laughs> if you read this book. Um, and in a sense, that, that's not my intention. That This book is a, is a, is a brick in the wall. And I, I often come back to Paul's image of the body of Christ. You know, the different organs, the different parts of the body do different things. This book is doing one particular thing. It's working at that fundamental social imaginary level and saying this is these are the rhythms and patterns of a biblical way of, of living in the world. And I think it's for others with a different skill set, with a different training, perhaps 
politics people rather than philosophers such as myself to then draw upon aspects of that social imaginary and, and work it through at a policy level. I, I don't have the, the academic chops to do that. Um, and that's not what this book is, is trying to do. But I don't want to, to then say what this book is doing is the only thing that needs to be done. No, of course not. You know, the, the body of Christ is complex. And my, you know, my book is, you know, a little toenail of the body of Christ and other mm. people need to need to be active in different areas. But but I yeah. think what I would say is that there's the the, the biblical social imaginary um, is is not going to work itself out simply in terms of one concrete explicit set of policy options. Uh, I think yeah. that the world that we live in is too complex. So some things will be clear, but I think other things will be um, possible to take in, in different ways. And, yeah. and that's, that's the case with any political position. So you, you start with a, a political vision, you know, an intuition about society, a certain social imaginary of the way in which human beings work. And then you seek to elaborate a range of policies that resonate with, with the world as you see it. And that's why political mm -hmm. parties change their policies over time as well. Um, and so I, I don't want to, I don't want to give the impression that there's going to be one and only one correct way to translate these social imaginary sort of biblical realities into the policy level. Um, do, does that make sense? Yeah, uh, froze up a little bit, but that's I think we're good now. Um, yeah, that's that's really helpful, and I I, I do appreciate that because I I do see it as like down, it's upstream of that conversation and people making those kind of choices. Man, I, I commend this book to them that they they need to be wrestling with this stuff as well. Um, and I think we all need each other, like you said, we're we're a body here, and so I I I tend because I love philosophy and theology, I want to go more abstract as well. But uh, I, I recognize that we do need people on the, on, you know, grassroots and downstream in politics, applying the stuff and, you know, applying biblical wisdom to say like, here is one way that this could go out. And, and is it, you know, let's debate that. Let's talk about that. So yeah, I appreciate that. And I that. think one, one potential critique of, of what I'm doing would be to say, look, it's, it's irrelevant until you get to the policy mm -hmm. level. Um, you're actually saying nothing. You're not giving people any, any sort of steer, and you know, if you're not saying who to vote for in the voting booth, you're you're not, you know, you're, you're irrelevant. And, and I think my response to that would be to ask the question: Well, what, where do political policies come from? Where do political visions come from? If if not from a certain idea of the social imaginary. So if you don't start there, you're not getting to the root of the political questions. If if you only ever function on the level of policy, you're not allowing yourself to to understand why those policies make sense to the people who espouse them or what policies might make sense within, you know, a biblical social imaginary. So I think it's a necessary moment, but as you rightly say, it's not a sufficient moment. You know, it, it does need other writers to, to, to build upon this, you know, as, as people have been doing, of course, um, over the, over the decades and say, okay, well, what, what might this look like on a policy level? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's fantastic, man. Well, okay, so I think that um, I, I wanted to raise a lot of those just to kind of preempt some critiques and to, just to give a, a better hearing to the book. Uh, and I think I think we did that. So let's jump in on some more like uh, the the nitty gritty, the details of the book. Um, you you talk about culture, um, which which was fantastic. Because the whole book could have been about culture. And I was like, oh, is he actually going to do it? And you go in and you give us some kind of lenses and uh, tools for analyzing culture. And I was I was shocked that you were able to do it in such a short amount of time. Uh, I was really impressed by that. You, you talk about, you know, broad views of culture and narrow views. Broad touches on every aspect of how we live in the world. Narrow is, is more like music, art, literature. Um, it's used in different senses. Um, but then you, you go in on these figures. And I think the figures you said comes from... Uh, like figure and ground and gestalt psychology, can you help us out with the, with a what, what what figures are and how they can help us think through culture? Yeah, thank you. There are two senses to to figure that I'm trying to draw on. The first is where you talk about a figure of speech. You know, say a metaphor, for example. And yeah. the metaphor isn't any particular content, but it's a way of using language, and it can have almost infinite different contents you know anything can be a metaphor but it's still a metaphor so so there's there's a continuity there's a constancy on the level of the way language is being used the the gesture of language if you like that yeah. that can be filled with with different content and that sense of figure gives you an idea of patterns or rhythms you know either of language or of culture that are not dependent on the particular content of a culture, but will be repeated with different content over time, just as just as metaphors are. So that's one sense of figure. The second sense of figure, as you rightly say, is figure and ground. So this is the way that we all interact with the world all the time. So at the moment, I'm focusing on, on the little picture of you and me on my computer screen in front of me. Yeah. And there's lots of things that I'm not paying attention to. Um, there's lots of information that's actually coming in through my eyeballs that I'm disregarding um, because I can't pay attention to everything. I can't be equally focusing on on the little picture of you in front of me and everything that's going on in the room around me. Um, and that's that's just part of being human, isn't it? We we all choose what to focus on moment by moment. I, I think I read somewhere that there are oh, I'm going to get this wrong, 11 million bits of information that come into our body every second through our oh. sensors, and we process about five of them or something like that. The, the proportion is astonishing anyway. We can only pay yeah. attention to a very small amount of, of what we're presented with in the world. Um, and what we pay attention to is called the figure, and everything else is called the ground. And so in that sense, the figure is what jumps out at us from all the different things that we could be paying attention to at the moment. This is what we're focusing on. And there'll be reasons why particular figures present themselves to us. You know, we're um, enculturated, for example, if, if there's a person in a room to pay attention to the person and not to the rest of the room. And so yeah. almost always the person will be the figure. It's, it's just the way that, that we engage with the world. And so these two senses of figures together um, help us, I think, to arrive at an understanding of culture where what we're trying to look for are the patterns and rhythms that a particular culture repeats over and over again and the things that it pays attention to in the world. Mm. So no culture 
can equally um, notice everything. There's just too much out there in society. And so particular cultural standpoints will be sensitive to particular things out there in the world. So for example, um, up until perhaps the, the late 1950s, it was rare for Western culture to notice the, the different ways in which women can be oppressed in society. It might have been very yeah. obvious to women, but it wasn't part of the public <laughs> discourse. Um, right. but, but since then, those things have been made much more visible. They've become the figure rather than the ground. Um, and uh, you know, to to the point where now it you can't ignore that, and and so the, the the culture has has changed what it's sensitive to over time. Things that were in the background have now become the figure, and I think this is a, a helpful way of understanding culture because it allows for different types of figures. So ideas and concepts can be figures. Ideas make certain things visible. They draw our attention to certain things. The words we use draw our attention to certain things. And figures can also be um, habits, patterns of behavior, rituals that we engage in, whether they're you know, Christian rituals or, or secular rituals, or the, the way that life works. Uh, figures can be the way that time and space is understood and intuited in society. You know, So today we've got a a 24-7 society, there's no particular time that's, that's set apart from the rest that, that's more special than other times. It's all just one constant sort of production line, really, that, that we squeeze productivity out of. That's a figure. That's a way of rhythming time. And there's also a sense in which um, the, the artifacts and, and the, the built environment around us is a figure as well mm. you know so if, if i wander downstairs here into a lecture theater that there's a certain way that that's set out that implies a set of relationships in a way of being in the world so i as a lecturer stand up at the front with a screen behind me and a microphone in front of me and everybody else sits down in rows with no microphones in front of them so that predisposes us to a certain way of relating to each other and so all of these different things are figures all of them pattern and rhythm reality in certain ways. And this idea of figures, therefore, allows each of these different types of figures to, to have their say. You know, it allows uh, the understanding that the concepts and ideas shape reality for us, that rituals and habits shape reality for us, that the built environment and artifacts shape reality for us, that intuitions about space and time shape reality for us, not necessarily all on an equal level, but it allows each of those to, to, to have an input on the way we understand culture. And I think what that gets over is the tendency in some cultural criticism to privilege one of these above all others. Exactly. So for, for, for the longest time that there's been a, a stream of Christian thought that said everything is fundamentally a concept. This is, this is how worldview thinking is sometimes cashed out. Uh, and everything else is downstream of ideas and concepts. And then there's been, I think, a, a pushback against that monolithic way of looking at things, which is sort of, if you like, bent the stick back too far in the other direction yeah. and said that, you know, everything is fundamentally at its most basic original level, a, a habit or a ritual or a behavior and concepts mm -hmm. sort of come, come downstream of that. And what I wanted to try and avoid was 
erecting any of these individual modes of culture as the gate through which everything else must pass and yeah. through which everything else, you know, in terms of which everything else is, is necessarily downstream. Because I think it's just culture is complex, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and that the interactions between ideas and built environments and habits and so forth are, are, are really too hard to simplify to saying oh, one of these is always first and everything <laughs> else follows it. Yeah. So that was one of the things I'm so glad you brought that up and that overcorrection. Uh, that was one of the things I found most helpful in the book because um, I've noticed that, you know, like uh, in the 80s and 90s, uh, worldview stuff started making it more into like the popular apologetics type stuff. And yeah, it was, hey, we really have to take over the, we have to really focus on the university because that's where ideas happen and ideas trickle down from there and then there was a you know rightful pushback saying not not necessarily all you know always uh and then you know charles taylor came out and his to me seems a lot more non-cognitive a lot more habituation about a lot more rituals and hobbies and it was the it was the invention of the steam engine and that's why people stopped going to church and, and i think he's right in a lot of ways but it's complex like you said and so you give these six categories of figures which I believe I'm terrible at, at foreign pronunciations, but it, I think it's the figuration total. Is that, does that sound right? That's right. It's quite a okay. clumsy phrase. It's, it's riffing off Sarah Coakley's idea of a théologie totale, where, where mm. she tries to, to take into account uh, different cultural artifacts. So it's so texts and, and images and statues and so forth in order to get a sense of the way in which people saw themselves inhabiting the world. Uh, yeah. at a particular moment um and okay. it's, it's my clumsy uh retooling of, of her language at that point yeah i like that yeah it's and it's a concept that i have now i can hang you know it's a hook to hang things on and so you you go over six of these and um i think it's i think it's a helpful uh grid for for analyzing culture uh, the first is language ideas stories second is time and space third is structure of reality fourth is behavior Fifth is relationship and six is objects. And it's so tempting to grab one of those and go, no, it's objects. You know, look at the steam engine. Look at look at the Ford, uh, you know, automobile. And it's like, yeah, that, that's right. But also the language and the ideas that brought, you know, gave rise to those and time and space and structure. So uh, I'm, I'm really uh, encouraged by that. And I think that's a tool that I hope to see make it out there uh, for people to, to utilize and analyze uh, culture with that. So, um, so I, I thought that was really good. Another couple of tools that you talk about are engagement and diagonal, diagonalization. Um, can you help us with those? Yeah, certainly. Let's do diagonalization. Okay. Um, it's, it's a word that describes something that I think Christians have done throughout the centuries, but by sticking a label on it, you, you simply make it visible. So it's not a new idea. Mm -hmm. But hopefully the term diagonalization helps us to see something that, that Christian cultural critics have, have been doing for, for a very long time um, and therefore makes it available as something that, that we can then reuse uh, in, in our own context. I think the best way to describe it is through an example. Let's take the image of God motif in Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. And I think biblically what that is doing is two things, at least two things. First of all, it's exalting and dignifying human beings because of everything in the whole of creation, you know, the most stunning sunset, the most beautiful 
animal, the most majestic building or piece of music, only human beings of all those things are made in the image of God. Yeah. And therefore there's a dignity and a worth to human beings that's really quite astonishing and um, amazing in that idea. But there's also in the same idea of the image of God, a, a humbling of human beings because we're not God, we're the image yeah. of God. Yeah. Uh, and therefore there's a sense in which however exalted human beings are, we're not top dog in the universe. That is that place is remain uh, is is retained for God alone who created indeed the whole universe. Um, and there's no sense in Genesis one that these two facets of the image of God language are in tension with each other. It's not that, you know, we're sort of half exalted and half humbled and they're struggling with each other, that, that there's a beautiful harmony to that picture of human beings. And then you come to the modern world and you look at the way in which uh, it, it deals with, with anthropology, with what human beings are. And I think you see at least two tendencies there. And the first tendency takes the biblical idea of humbling and cuts it off, dismembers it from the rest of the Bible mm. um, and tries to sort of make it the whole truth of human beings. And so you end up with ideas like, oh no, human beings are only machines. Yeah. You get this coming through really strikingly in the, the first chapter of Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, for example, mm. where he just says, you know, we're strings and springs and wheels. That's, that's what we are. <laughs> Um, or other people will say that we're simply animals like all the others. There's nothing special about us. And so there's, there's that one branch of modern anthropology. But there's also another branch as well, which sets us up as deities. And John Milbank is really good on this in the opening chapters mm. of Theology and Social Theory, where he says that the, the idea of an uncontestable will that was originally elaborated in terms of the, the God of voluntarism, yeah. you know, the God for whom not even logic is an impediment, you know, that the God of voluntarism can make uh, two and two equal 11 yeah. if, if it should want, because nothing is an impediment to its will, not even logic. That idea of, of a brute, pure, uncontestable will, Milbank argues, in modernity, is lifted from a theological concept and it's actually made one of the guiding paradigms of humanity. Um, mm -hmm. And he does this through Thomas Hobbes and, and, and power in Hobbes and, and other people. Um, and so there's this, this other anthropology that says you are a God with the right and the responsibility to define yourself and reality and good and evil. Um, that, that, is, that is a weight that is on your shoulders. You must decide what is real, who you are, and what, what is good. And modernity sort of throws these two anthropologies at us all and says, go figure. You know, you're a machine. Oh, and by the way, you're a god as well. Uh, now mm. try, and, try and live that reality. And of course, it's, it's an incredibly painful, stressful reality to try and conjure with. And, you know, it, it's, it's very hard to assimilate that view of yourself and, and not be torn apart and, and not, you know, be psychologically really, really, that, that, it's incredibly difficult. Yeah. And so to diagonalize that difference, 
is to say, wait a minute, you've both taken some truth from the biblical ecosystem of ideas and you've cut it off, you've dismembered it from the other biblical ideas that it, it's in harmony with. You've blown it up, you've made it the whole truth, and then you've set these two ideas, you know, we're just machines, are we gods, butting up against each other in a way that they never were in the Bible to begin yeah. with. You know, the, the exaltation and the humility of, of humanity weren't two ferrets in a sack fighting each other in the image of God motif, they were in harmony. And so to diagonalize it is to call modernity back to the biblical harmony that it's dismembered. And I think yeah. sometimes it gets called a third way, and I'm not sure that that's the most helpful language for it, because it, a third way suggests that you start with modernity's dichotomy, we're machines and we're gods, and you try and split the difference between those two, you know, so perhaps we're half machines and we're half gods. Well, right. That's not a biblical view. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's as far from the, the biblical view of the image of God that you could get. So it's, it's not splitting the difference between modernity's false dichotomies. It's understanding that those dichotomies themselves are derivative of a richer, harmonious biblical truth and calling, calling ourselves back to that original truth. So if you like, in that sense, it's the first way, saying God was there first with the image of God motif. Yeah. Uh, modernity has, has largely made a mess of that by dismembering it and then making different aspects of it antagonistic to each other. And what we need to do is recover the harmony rather than split the difference of the false dichotomy. Yeah, I, I love that, and I love that idea of of diagonalization, which uh, yeah, you you also brought out in in your other books as well. Um, so I've been chewing on that for a while, and I've been thinking about things like like creation care, where where you see this the same kind of thing, where it's um, we have risen to the top, and we are basically gods, and so we can frack and oil, uh, you know, drag oil out of anywhere, and screw it, if we blow up this earth, we'll just go to Mars, and we'll do the same thing there because we our top dog and the other one the other side of the coin is well look what we're doing to the environment and let's just kill ourselves and it's anti-humanist um but you know the, the biblical diagnosis is like we're we're creatures of this earth and we're also uh god's representatives here called to exercise dominion over it and so no we don't just leave the forest by themselves but we exercise care over them and we cut down invasive species and we make sure things are thriving but we do it in a way that's along the grain of reality instead of against it. And so it's, it's been a really helpful concept for me to, to be thinking through other things that we see in the world where you do find these weird dichotomies where it's like a half truth or it's like a, it's based on the truth, but it's taking a, a gnarly turn and turned in on itself. Um, so I've, I've loved that. And, and it's called me back thinking about what we are. It's called me back again and again to Pascal's thinking read. Where it's like, yeah, we're 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 but a reed in blowing in the wind, and yet we can think about the world and the universe uh, because we're made in God's image, and uh, it's it's something that that keeps me up at night sometimes. Where I think about like the unbearable, I don't know if it's unbearable. This this huge burden of being God's image bearer, and yet being a creature of dust, and you see it in poems, you see it in in literature, or it's like it's crazy to be made in the image of God and to wake up and snap into consciousness. It's a privilege. And yet it's also this, this, this heavy burden and thank God for his grace. You know, that we get to, we get to have, be made right with him through his, his gift of uh, salvation. So, yeah, I, I, I love the, the humanity chapter um, that you're talking about. Um, I love the diagonalization between the two modern conceptions that are pitted against each other. 
I, I got to ask just for the sake of my audience about robots. You, you have this little subsection, posthumanism, robots and monsters. Um, just that, that, that Hobbesian idea that we are, we are just a bunch of strings that comes out a lot, I think in conversations around AI and, you know, if we're just a, we're just a machine. So yeah, sure. We can make another machine. Um, do you, do you think that, um, do you think that we can make artificial intelligence? And if, if so, does the image of God, is it like transitive? If, if we made a, a machine in our image and we're made in God's image, does that image of God transfer all the way down to the machine? What, what do you make of that kind of stuff? Just a little question there, Parker. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, I think the, the, um, the question of artificial intelligence and the debates around it are really, are really complex. And I'm, I'm not an expert in that field. And so I, I preface what I say by that necessary caveat that I, I don't understand the way that artificial intelligence works with the depth that I would need to in order to be able to satisfy your question fully. As I understand it, okay, that's the big caveat, as I understand it, what contemporary moves towards some sort of general artificial intelligence are doing are very powerfully and very successfully mimicking human-like responses to mm -hmm. inputs. So you take GPT-3, for example, you ask it a question and it can give you a response that it's very hard to tell often from a human response. Um, I, I had this conversation with GPT-3 the other day, actually, um, mm. and I was I was trying to play devil's advocate and say, essentially, you are human because it's impossible to tell the difference between you and a human in terms of the answers that you give. I just wanted to see what it would say. Uh, and it, it was very adamant that it wasn't human. It said, no, 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 I'm just, you know, a sophisticated computational algorithm and so forth. Um, and 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 I think. I think both of those and ideas are necessary to, to hold in mind. So first of all, artificial intelligence is at the point now where it can give human-like responses and where it's very hard to, you know, it's the Turing test, isn't it? Where it's very hard right. to tell apart from human beings yeah. in very significant ways. Um, there are, however, fundamental aspects of human being that are as yet off limits to artificial intelligence, namely, uh, embodiedness and finitude. Uh, in mm. other words, the, the fact that we die. Um, yeah. And and I think those are sometimes aspects of being human that have a tendency to get neglected by those who are on the cutting edge of developing mm. artificial intelligence. And, and I think, therefore, it is right to critique a certain Gnosticism or a certain dualism in the enterprise of artificial intelligence as it's currently being conducted. And, and I think that's why the, the representations of artificial intelligence that you have in film are almost always embodied and vulnerable because mm. we find it very hard to relate to, um, to, to humanize something that, that, that doesn't have those qualities. Um, yeah. And that as to the question of the, the image of God, I think in the same way that artificial intelligence can very successfully mimic human behavior, it obviously, therefore, given that humans are in the image of God, very successfully mimics 
the way that those in the image of God would, would respond to certain inputs. I, I think I would be much more comfortable personally with saying that artificial intelligence is in the image of, of human beings, in the image of man. Um, yeah. it, it is something that reflects back to us our own predilections, choices, understanding of the world, and indeed biases, as many research projects now are showing that, that you know, yeah. the way an artificial intelligence passes out the world is not neutral in relation to different racial groups and, and so forth. And I think that's a reflection of us, isn't it? That's not a reflection of God. That's a reflection yeah. both of, you know, the, the image of God in us and our own sinfulness, our own biases, our own blind spots. And artificial intelligence is reflecting all of that back to us. So I, yeah. I think it, it, more of that is captured by saying that it's in the image of human beings than would be by saying mm. that it's in the image of God, I think. I think that's helpful, especially uh, as uh, as people taking screenshots of GPT-3 responses that's showing its political leanings or something like that. It's like, yeah, you know, no, this is very obviously it's who it reflects those uh, opinions and presuppositions of the programmers of GPT-3. And of course, of course they do. You know, why, why wouldn't they? Um, so that, that makes sense. That's, that, I think that's a good one. You, in, in this chapter on humanity, chapter three, um, you talked about the nature sl um, slash improvement dichotomy uh, where there's like no improvement. And then that's set against uh, every and in, in any human improvement is, is good. And you dichotomize uh, or, and you, um, not triangulate. You diagnose those two. Can you can you help us with that one? Like, how how do we diagnose between human improvement, uh, no human improvement, just being you know na natural running around hobbits barefoot, versus being full out cyborgs, you know, with electric eyes? It. I think it's two ways of. It's two visions of reality that are falsely sacralized or made holy in that sense. The. The first of those positions that you describe begins from the position that the way things are currently, uh, or at least in a state in which they're uninterfered with by human beings, is the way they ought to be. There's a goodness about the status quo, the, the non-human status quo. And therefore, our footprint on the world is at its best when it is at its smallest. Mm. Uh, we should leave everything that is possible to leave. You know, to, to the point, some people would argue uh, that it, it is ethically culpable to have children because mm. they are a drain on the world's resources um, and we will inevitably change and exploit and, and pillage the, the, the natural world, the, the more of us there are, so there, there should be fewer of us. So that's, that's one sacralization of the status quo. The other is, is a sacralization of a human vision of what we think we ought to be. And for that vision, any means is legitimate to arrive at that end of an improved humanity because the gains are so good. Mm. And this, this falls in with all the sort of radical revolutionary ideologies, really, of, of history, which is that you've got to break some eggs to make your omelette. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got to in order to arrive at the improved human beings, you've got to make some awkward ethical decisions along the way because, you know, the, the improved state of human beings is so wonderful. And the, the, 
one of the many issues with that position is that, well, hold on, who is it who's deciding what improvement means and what it, what it means to get better as human beings? Well, it's us. Right. Well, who are we? We're the human beings who need to be better. So yeah. why should we trust our judgment about what improved humanity is, given that the one premise of the very need for improvement is that we're, we're not the bee's knees? Yeah. And also, who in the sense of which community, which group of people decide what an improved humanity is? And I think it, that's not humanity as a whole, certainly as, as technology is at the moment. That's a very restricted group of human beings with, with their own particular blind spots, as all of us have. But if that particular set of blind spots is hard-baked into a sense of what an improved humanity is, then I think we're all the poorer for that. Yeah. So I think there's, there's huge problems with both of those modes of sacralizing, both of those demarcations of the holy. Uh, and I think the Bible just gives a much healthier, uh, richer and more inclusive vision for, for the way that we should relate to the natural world, which is that, as you were rightly saying, human beings have been given what the Bible calls a dominion over uh, the world and the pattern for that dominion crucially is the way in which God cares for the world mm. so people have often taken that idea of dominion and used it to uh, to uh, arrive at the conclusion that we can do whatever we want um, we can take whatever we want from the world we can dig up whatever we want we can pollute in whatever ways we want right. um, but that's that's not God's pattern is it that's not the way that he has dominion over the world you don't see him doing that and he sets the pattern um, yeah. for how Christians should care for the world under him. Uh, and if we follow God's way of caring for the world, then we won't simply dig up everything that you can possibly dig up and pollute in every way that you can possibly pollute in order to improve human life by our own understanding of improvement. We'll, we'll try and model our care for the world on, on his. Hmm. Um, and therefore, you're not in a position where you're saying, you know, either um, in the same way that there are sacred groves you know there must necessarily be sacred mass extinction events and sacred pandemics because we shouldn't touch nature we shouldn't try to change anything at all we shouldn't take paracetamol or any medicines because nature is sacred and must take its course in us as, as in everything else uh, mm. and, and nor are you saying uh, well let's just slash and burn because the economy is going to benefit from that um yeah. it, again it's just like the image of god both of those have a flicker of a biblical truth in them that's been dismembered from other biblical truths, blown out of all proportion and twisted uh, to the point where it's almost beyond recognition. And so along with the, um, the, the position that wants to conserve the natural world, you know, the, the, the Christian vision has the, this right at its foundation, the idea that God originally created a good world. And so materiality, for example, is good. But Christians yeah. also palimpsestually, palimpsestically overlay on that the idea that everything in this world is also twisted and distorted by sin, not just human hearts, but the, the created world as well. You know, Romans 8, creation is groaning. Um, yeah. And therefore, the way things are now is not necessarily the way that they were originally created, not necessarily the best way for them to be. So um, certain interventions into the way things are to try and bring them in line with um, uh, a, a vision of, of a flourishing ecosystem and a flourishing world is not sort of off limits to Christians. 
And then with with the point of view that says, you know, we, sh we should slash and burn and do whatever we need to, to, to get the economy ticking over a little bit faster than it's ticking at the moment. There's a sense in which a judicious use of the world's resources is, is a right thing for Christians. Um, that it's not that we shouldn't touch anything because um, because it's sacred in and of itself. No, no, God is holy. Um, not in the first instance, the world that he's made. And he, he cares for it. And it is good, interestingly, without human beings. God calls the creation good before he's uh, created Adam and Eve. Right, so there's a sense right. in which it's not simply good for us, but there's a goodness in its relationship to God, mm. regardless of us. And I think that's something that, that human beings will need to respect. And so, and so it's neither, it's neither the frying pan of the ecosystem is sacred in and of itself, nor the fire, almost sometimes literally the fire of, you know, burn it all up and, and, and use it for whatever good seems right to us at, at the moment. And again, it's not splitting the difference between those two yeah. either. There's a richer biblical environmental ethic um, of which those two things are dismembered shards. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a good point about, about God calling it good before before man. Uh, therefore, it can't just be for us. Just It's just, just our playground or anything. That's really good. It reminds me um, in your chapter on Genesis or on creation, I think it's chapter two, um, Another another really good insight that that I gleaned from your book was this order chaos uh, dichotomy, and I, I was so primed for this because a lot of my guys, um, more so a, a couple years ago, would listen to Jordan Peterson, and I, for whatever reason, he, he's kind of waning in the circles that I run in. But he he's always talking about order and chaos, order and chaos, and we've talked about this a little bit before as well. But you you talk about in the creation narrative there's this like order and like radical creative acts, but they're separated by each day. So there's no leakage between the days. And that was, that was new for me. That was really fantastic to, to think about the order and chaos that, you know, however you're interpreting uh, the, the days, whether Yom is a time period back in the day type style, or like an actual, it was Thursday. It was this, this one, um, whether young earth or old earth, all that, there's still these, these bracketing out of days of God's creative activity where he's saying, here I'm doing this and then that's that. And then I'm doing this and I'm doing that. I really, really appreciated that. And you, you go through Charles Taylor's, um, I don't know, mimesis, I guess, mimesis, uh, and, and poesis. I know poesis is right. Uh, order and, and chaos. So I, that was good, man. Like that was, that was a really unique insight that was super helpful for me, but I, I don't want to stay on that because at the end of that chapter, you talk about Sisyphus and, you know, Everyone always is quoting Camus. You know, we have to imagine um, Sisyphus happy. There's tons of philosophy memes that are made about this. And you say, yeah, I don't want to imagine him happy. And I don't want him to imagine himself happy. Can you, do you remember, do you have that like on the top of your mind? Can you explain why we shouldn't imagine him happy? I remember the frustration of, of reading that passage <laughs> and thinking the poor guy, the, the worst thing for him would be to imagine that this interminable, um, burden of rolling this um rock up to the top of the mountain only for it to fall down again then he rolls it up again like don't don't settle into that don't think that right. that you're happy in that and and i guess part of that is is a critique of of the rat race isn't it so our our sisyphian task is you know 
the next thousand dollars that I make is going to make me happy. The, the, the next promotion I get is going to, is going to do it for me. The next house that I buy, you know, the next relationship that I fall into is going to be the one that's going to finally make me happy. And then, you know, lo and behold, surprise, surprise, we find that it doesn't. Oh, well, you know, the next one. And so, so modernity conditions us to be that Sisyphus. And I think that the, the last thing that we need is to consider that happiness. Because mm. at that point, you, you become unable to see the reality of your own situation, which is being, you're, you're being played. You're being had by, by a system that just wants you to think that the next shiny object that you buy is the one that's going to make you happy because the money from that shiny object is going to go into the pockets of another person who thinks that the, the profit that they make is going to make them happy. And it's, it's a right. self-perpetuating system. And, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a huge false consciousness. I don't think it's controversial to say that these things in a fundamental way don't make us happy. I think recent statistics on depression and, and loneliness and so forth really militate against the idea that Sisyphus is happy. And yeah. so I think we, we need to be constructively unhappy with the way that modern society catechizes us into believing that happiness is just around the corner. We just need to roll the stone at the hill one more time and that's going to be it. Um, yeah. No, it isn't. We need something radically different to that. You know, Sisyphus yeah. needs to, to sort of sit on his boulder at the bottom of the mountain um, and crack his Bible open and, yeah. and start, start understanding um, the God who doesn't make him into a slave, uh, but who died for him to set him free. You know, the, mm -hmm. the God whose, whose yoke is, is easy and whose burden is light and who gives him rest. I guess that's it, isn't it? Sisyphus needs to find rest and he will never do so unless he becomes unhappy. Yeah. And I, I love that because um, I believe like imagining him happy is was kind of a subversive take. Like, all right, fine. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get strong by doing this. I'm gonna have big muscles. Whatever. I, you're 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 damning me to do this forever. I'm gonna be subversive and just enjoy it. And so there's kind of like, yeah, being being happy. Uh, you know, maybe it's like a stoic uh, mentality or something like that. And and it can be read in, in a bunch of different ways. And and you're saying, look, no, I prefer I prefer a, a more uh, subversive resistance. Um, because uh, I think I think you you said it was from uh, Brueggemann that says um, you know this is just capitulating to the insatiable gods of imperial productivity. This is not being subversive. You're just you're just accepting your lot in this system, and you're just forcing yourself to try and be happy. The real subversive thing is to step out from it. And then you, yeah, you, you talk about what you said here that he needs he needs God's rest. He needs to take on Christ's yoke uh, and his burden, which is easy and light and. I love that, man. I, I thought that was really, um, I thought that was a really succinct way of um, showing a biblical, critical, um, you know, theoretical critique, I guess, of even a subversive um, concept in our culture today. Even amongst, you know, the educated, the philosophers of our day, are like, "Hey, look, I'm going to be Sisyphus. I'm going to be happy." Like, no, no, we need to critique that as well. Um, through through biblical theology, which I, I thought was fantastic, man. So I, I really I had to talk about that because I thought that one was really fascinating. Yeah, let's 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 all be constructively unhappy. Um, That's right. Let's cultivate a, a a biblically based dissatisfaction. I think yeah. with the with the portfolio of options that the modern world gives us, in order then to find something better. You know, it's it's C.S. Lewis's yeah. mud pies, isn't it? 
you know, you, we, we're yeah. all too easily pleased with the mud pies that we're making in the slum when mm. we could be going for a day at the beach. So it's not just become unhappy and miserable for the sake of being, <laughs> you know, stoically unhappy and miserable. It's right. that you're, you're never, you're never going to contemplate the beach unless you realize that making mud pies is really quite dissatisfying. Yeah. And there's another concept. Um, again, what's, what's helpful, what you do very well, which I think is helpful is giving, giving the language to these kind of these concepts that are sometimes vague, sometimes have, you know, like vague edges or something, but you're saying, here's a, here's a concept for us. And another concept is out narrating. And so how the Bible will out narrate the, the stories of our day, which a lot of times have some truth to them. Otherwise they wouldn't be memes. They wouldn't be passed on. They wouldn't be, um, whatever language we use for them, uh, um, cultural, cultural, you know, social imaginaries or something like that. But we want to like paint a better picture. And sometimes that will, will fall under, um, criticism from the more modern Christians. And I mean, modern in the old sense that they're modernist Christians. And they'll say, no, that's not, we, we care about is truth. And like, yeah, yeah, that's great, man. Of, of course we care about truth, but we also care about telling a better story than uh our competitors and we're not making up the story the story's already been in the bible it's 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 already been there we just want to we want to compel people to see this as a beautiful picture which it truly is yeah that's fine um so that out narrating is is really uh helpful and i want to finish up by out narrating our conception of god by going over your trinity chapter but i have to you you give this story in the trinity chapter of having uh checked out this book Trinity and truth, and then not, not having, uh, read it. I, I don't know if it's the same. You didn't say the author, but I think it's, it's, uh, Bruce Marshall. This is Trinity. This is this the one? Okay. So yeah, yeah, I, I totally, one. I totally connected with you because I did the same thing. I checked it out, never read it. Then I bought it and I still haven't read it. So I need to read this book. It was a reminder to me, but I was like, okay, I, I totally resonate with that story. I have it on my shelf, been meaning to read it for years, but you, you talk about how, um, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity can impact our approach to society and culture and cultural critique, um, which, which is fantastic. This is like a, a, a Vantillian Bavinkian understanding of God, like diagonalizing the absolute and the personal. Um, can, can we end with that? Can, can you help us? Um, how, how is the Trinity diagonalized? What is the absolute and the personal? Why are those two in, in conflict? And then how does the Trinity diagonalize those? There are four key ways, I think, in which the, the Trinity, so to speak, sets reality up in a way that's really quite fresh and subversive. Um, and, and absolute personality theism is, is one of those. The, the first one is that the, the Bible is very clear on what some theologians have called the creator-creature distinction, that God is not part of the world, that he's created that he's outside of it and his way of existing is radically different to the world's way of existing. So we and everything in the world, everything in creation is contingent on something outside of us. In other words, we, we were made by God. We don't, we're not self-sufficient, self-existing. Um, and our existence as human beings is finite. Um, but God is not dependent on anything outside himself and his existence is not finite and not created. And so there are two fundamentally different ways of being if you like, there's, there's God's way, which is infinite, non-dependent, eternal, so forth. And, and there's the creation's way of being, which is contingent, dependent on God, on some, on something outside itself. Um, and then from that basis, you then say, well, what sort of God did create the world? 
Uh, and this is where absolute personality theism comes in. So there are any number of ways of looking at the world that have an absolute principle, a sort of a bedrock of reality. When you dig down, you, you hit rock bottom somewhere. Um, yeah. I, I don't know what it is for modern science. Let's say, let's say it's energy for sake of argument. I'm, I'm sure that's wrong, but, but just, just for the sake of saying something, energy is yeah. the most fundamental thing that there is. And everything, all the atoms, all the quarks, all the strings, everything is built out of energy, for example. And that's, that's an impersonal ultimate reality. And then there are other ways of, of looking at the world. So take the, the Greek pantheon or the Roman pantheon, for example, that, that see reality in fundamentally personal terms. So, you know, Zeus as the, um, uh, as the chief god um, is, has the, the, the traits of personality. And I know in Greek and Roman thinking there are some impersonal principles as well, but just, just because we don't have long, let's, let's run with the pantheon. Okay, yeah. so you've got your absolute and you've got your personal. Now, what is really quirky within the, the landscape of, of ways of looking at the world about the Bible is that the God of the Bible is both absolute because mm. of the creator-creature distinction and personal. So it's not that God's personality, if you like, supervenes over some impersonal absolute principle that he most fundamentally is, that you can get behind God's personality, something more fundamental than that. No, no, right. the, the, the deepest reality, the bedrock that you hit in our world, when you dig down and get below everything, is, is the personal God and the absolute God. And that's, that's really unique and really exciting for Christians. So just, just one little footnote on that before I bounce on to, to the next distinctive. Um, we, we often quite quick, aren't we, to say that God, God's absolute nature grounds the sciences, that, that the, the world is predictable and ordered because God is a God of order, that he's not just one God with a particular jurisdiction fighting against the other gods in some sort of chaos, and therefore the world is unpredictable. No, there's an orderliness. Science makes sense because of, of God's absoluteness. Yeah. But we're often not quite so quick to say that the arts and humanities make sense because of mm. God's personality, that right. it, it, it is meaningful and important to investigate not only the impersonal natural world, but also the, 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 the way in which people with, with personality, persons, live in and inhabit that world. Both of those enterprises mm. have an equal dignity because God is both absolute and personal. And, and his absolute personality, if you like, underwrites and legitimizes both enterprises, um, which I think is just fantastic in the, the modern world, which tends to sort of lean, certainly I think in, in university circles, tends to lean towards the sciences as, as where the real work is done and where the real progress is made and tends today to denigrate the arts. You turn the clock back six, 700 years, it was the opposite. Um, science was some sort of quirky hobby that some weird people did, but but it was all about um, theology and um, and you know the the human sciences uh, at that point. And so you know we've 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 gone wrong on both sides of that. But I think that yeah. the God's absolute personality gives you a model for validating and um, uh, lifting up both of those enterprises as of equal worth in our engagement with the world. Okay, so that's absolute personality theism. But there, there's more to God in the Bible than that he is absolutely personal. There's also 
um, the you know John uh, Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17. There, there's a, a relationship between the Son and the Father before the creation of the world. You got that that idea of wisdom in Proverbs that seems to be gesturing towards the same thing. So so there's there's a sense that the Christians have kept through carefully reading the Bible crystallized over time into the doctrine of the Trinity, that, that God is three persons and one God. Mm. Uh, and so ultimate reality is not only both absolute and personal, it's also relational. Relationships aren't something that sort of pop into the story of the universe after things have got going on some atomistic level. But again, the bedrock of reality is a relational reality. God is irreducibly relational. It's not that first God is a, a monistic God, and then, you know, he creates the Son and the right. Spirit because he's lonely or anything like that. No, God is relational all the way down. And that is a very, very different reality to live in than a, an, an atomized individualistic reality. And this is one of the things I think that the, the modern world gets really, really wrong and where, where Christians can, can seek subversively to fulfill modernity's aspirations for community. Because if you don't start with relationship, relationships are always sort of an optional add-on, something that yeah. is quite nice to have, but something that's not fundamental to who we are. And I think that tends to be the way that modernity thinks about us. We're fundamentally atomized, isolated individuals. And then, you know, community is wonderful and all that, of course, but it's something that comes later in the game but that's not the biblical view and then the fourth point is that these relationships this fundamental relationality of the warp and woof of the universe for the bible isn't just a blank vanilla relationality you know the I bible doesn't say the son had a relationship with the father before the creation of the world no it's the father loved the son before mm -hmm. the creation of the world and time and time again if you gather together all these verses that speak about God before the creation of the world, the theme that keeps returning again and again is love. Yeah. Uh, and it seems, therefore, that the love that is shared between the persons of the Trinity is the fundamental heartbeat of their relationship with each other. And so yeah. from a Christian point of view, in a Christian social imaginary, love is fundamental to reality because it's fundamental to the God who is in Van Til's terms, back of all reality. And again, that just overturns the apple cart in terms of, of the way that you see the world and the way that you see yourself as a human being in that world. You know, love isn't, again, something that it's quite nice to have once in a while. It is yeah. fundamental. Um, and therefore, when we love, we cut fundamentally with the grain of reality in the deepest sense. And therefore, to build a social imaginary and a vision for society around the core value of love, I think is first of all a distinctively biblical thing to do. And I think that the, the, the modern world tends to, to conjure with, with weaker, more sort of thin notions of, of respect and tolerance and things like that. But, but I think that the full-bodied, you know, sort of triple-strength biblical idea of love <laughs> Is, is a distinctively Christian building block uh, around which to arrange a vision of what society uh, can be. Yeah, um, I think that's so helpful. Um, I was gonna say even more, so, so I work with, with college wrestlers in my ministry and I, I do jujitsu and, and so I'm around a lot of like manly men. 
And some of them might uh, think, yeah, this is kind of squishy. Love. You tell me love is the back of all things. Like, well, yeah, but it's a love between a father and his son. And how does that play out? How do we follow that? Well, we follow Christ who laid down his life for his friends. And there's nothing more masculine than that type of love, right? So like, yes, and, and yes, it, it applies to a husband and a wife between Christ and his church. So there's also that for everyone, right? There's there's all the aspects of love. But for someone who's thinking like Christianity squishy like this, like, well, go live it out, you know, take it for the, for the sake of argument. How would this look? How would you be a Christian? Oh, you would lay down your life for your wife, for your fam family, for your friends, for, for God's glory and honor, for your own good. Like, that is a deep, rich notion of love. That's not this, like you said, it's not a thin notion of, of uh, squishy love. It's not a romantic notion of, of uh, a false American romantic notion of love. This is deep. It goes deep. And um, I, I love how that, that challenges our modern views of love as well. I think that's right. I think when we, when we see, when we, think that a biblical view of love is squishy the problem is not with the bible it's it's with us and the mm. cultural um distortions of of love that that we've swallowed and, and we don't realize we swallowed you know jesus is loving the pharisees surely because yeah. you know if anyone is loving he is jesus is when yeah. he shouts at them you brood of vipers <laughs> yeah. and and he's, yeah. he's loving them when he stands up to them and, and looks them in the eye and takes all the punishment that they give him but he's also loving you know the woman caught in adultery when he treats her gently he's loving mary and martha so love mm. love is a, a wide a broad keyboard there are lots of notes on the keyboard of love and if mm. we take one half of it and say that that half is masculine love and take the other half of it and say that that half is feminine love i think we we sell both men and women short you know yes. jesus jesus is is just he's playing the whole keyboard um, you know, he's he's loving when, as you rightly say, he's laying down his life and when he's calling people out in public and when he's standing up and putting his head above the parapet and he's loving when he's being gentle in private as well. And I think the challenge yeah. for all of us, men and women alike, is to try and play the same keyboard that Jesus played. Mm, yeah. Amen, man. That's so good. I'm, I'm so glad you, you helped me with that one at the end. Um, well, We've barely we've barely got into this book. It, I mean, look, folks, this is a big old thick book. Um, we'd have to spend hours and hours and hours, and I don't think we'd ever cover it all. So I highly uh, recommend, I commend this book for those who are thinking critical theory and, and you're getting all triggered, which is ironic because you guys are the ones usually who call people out for being triggered. Don't be triggered. Um, this book comes highly like recommended by amazing people, but as you heard, like it's a, it's a fantastic book that I think, um, has a lot of helpful concepts for shaping culture, building culture, critiquing culture, um, and getting the biblical story, right? Like in your own walk with the Lord, understanding the book that he's given us. I think this is a, a huge step forward. So, uh, Chris, man, thanks. Thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for this work. Thanks for sticking with it for, for 20 years and, uh, seeing it, seeing it through. It's always an absolute joy, Parker. I've really under, um, appreciate our conversation. Love your questions. Love the way that you dig and probe. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, man. All right, folks. Well, that's that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies. Uh, if you want the book, uh, check a link in the description. I'll put my affiliate link to the Amazon uh, book. You can, you can help support the podcast by grabbing it there. That's going to have to do it for now, though. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.